I often uh, contemplate an image which I first heard in ancient ancient Zen texts. And the image is of the Buddhas sitting in the midst of fierce flames, turning the wheel of Dharma. Another image is Buddhas sitting at the center of the infinite ocean of suffering beings. And I, I often also extend that metaphor to apply to, well, of course, Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva sits at the center of an ocean of beings and observes them with eyes of compassion. I, I wouldn't be surprised if that didn't surprise you. That you might not be surprised to hear that this great Bodhisattva sits at the center of all suffering beings and observes them with eyes of compassion and listens to them with ears of compassion. then extending the metaphor further some people might be surprised when I have suggested that each of us is also sitting at the center of all suffering beings The center where each of us sit is different from the center where others sit. The center you're at, the center you're at, the center you're at is a different center. But you're at the center. The difference is that you're at the center of your universe, but you're not at the center of mine. You're, you're around me, and I'm around you. So that each is a unique center, and everybody is a unique center. And that's where we practice the way of Buddha. 
I suggest to you. And I remember that myself. This morning, uh, during morning service, as I often, as often occurs to me, when we're chanting the Heart Sutra, it often occurs to me, oh, as far as I know, this is the only scripture, the only sutra of perfect wisdom, where the person who's teaching is Avalokiteshvara. And some scholars who've searched more than I have, as far as I know, they they have not found any other ones. Do you understand that? There's one Prajnaparamita Sutra where Avalokiteshvara is the teacher, speaking the teaching. This is the Heart Sutra. Great compassion is taught by the Bodhisattva. Great wisdom is taught by the Bodhisattva of great compassion in the Heart Sutra. The Buddha is there and Avalokiteshvara is speaking for the Buddha at the center. Great compassion teaches great wisdom. In other sutras, Sabuti, the great Sabuti, teaches, or Shariputra, or the Buddha directly. But this one, this sutra we chant, is taught by the Bodhisattva of great compassion. So, it seemed, it, this morning it seemed quite appropriate Mary Carroll changed the dedication and said, not, we have not chanted the heart of great compassion. Did you notice you said that? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for making that point. This is the heart, this sutra is the heart of great compassion and wisdom. Does that make sense? Someone recently said, um, I'm not sure what they said, but something like, like you say, I'm sitting in the center of all my personal suffering. You're also sitting at the center of of your personal suffering. We've all got our personal suffering, but you're not just sitting at the center of personal suffering, you're, su- you're sen- sitting in the center of everybody's suffering. But anyway, this person said, I'm sitting at the center of personal suffering 
and it's like a cocoon. And I thought, oh yeah. A cocoon. That's where the larvae, <laughs> we're little larvies, or larvae, I guess, huh? We're little larvae, we're big larvae, different size larvae, <laughs> different size larvies and Levi's, <laughs> sitting in the cocoon. And in the cocoon, the larvae and the larvae, they melt. They, yeah, they melt. They, dis- not exactly disintegrate, but they melt. And then they, and then they reconstitute. So it's a nice, another nice metaphor for our practice that if we take our seat, <laughs> and sit there properly, we will melt and be reconstituted. Like, uh, yeah, like, um, a larvae usually don't have exoskeletons. Any biologists in the room? Do they have exoskeletons? No. I don't think so. They're, they're often very soft, like maggots. And, but then they, after the transformation, they often come out with exoskeletons and wings, right? Do ants go through it, have metamorphosis? The queen ant comes out of metamorphosis, right? The queen ant was once a larvae, and by being cared for in a certain way, you get a queen ant, and you care for the larvae. So they have these larvae nurseries, right, in the, in the colony. And then they take, care, they take care of the different larvae in different ways. Take care of the larvae, feed the larvae this kind of stuff, they come out as worker. <laughs> feed them other stuff, they come out as guardians. Feed them other stuff, they come out as queens. Anybody? That's what I. That's what I've heard. But I'm not a. I'm not a really highly educated zoologist. Anyway, we will. We are being reconstituted here in. In the. Um, what do you call it? Cocoon. And uh, we can do some good work in the cocoon. And also we have some house, some temple cleaning to do in the cocoon. You don't have to be totally metamorphized before you start practicing. The practicing melts and reconstitutes. And the melting is sometimes accompanied by various emotions, like, yikes, what's going on here? Or, I'm afraid what's going to happen to me? 
fuss or whatever. Lots going on. Lots of full range of stuff is in the process. Yeah, so you could imagine this going different ways. One way to imagine it is that um, the bodhisattvas stay in the cocoon until they emerge as Buddhas. But you could also imagine, well, they stay in the cocoon long enough to be great bodhisattvas, and then they emerge. I got, right now I kind of feel a little more close to they stay in the cocoon and do their work in the dark until they emerge as Buddha. And sometimes they have a hard time. Earlier in 2021, <laughs> I often laugh, and you don't know why I just laughed, right? <laughs> Did anybody know why I just laughed? <laughs> no. I often laugh before I tell you what I'm laughing about. And I don't actually have time necessarily to tell you all the stuff I'm laughing about. <laughs> but in this case, I'm going to tell you what I laughed about. And I, when, I, when I examine my state, what I call it, my cocoon, where the laughter emerged, I often just find that what I'm laughing at is some, something ironic. I'm gradually developing a sense of humor about irony, which I feel good about. And so the irony is that... Uh, I just had this thought, and I said, 2021, in the summer of 2021. Did you hear me say that? And then I had the thought, 2022. And I had the thought, that's a nice number. And then I thought, and I thought 2020 was a nice number. (laughs) I thought, this is a nice number for a year. And uh, yeah. And then after a while, 2020 turned into not a bad number, but a really, really hard year. It was like cocoon hell for a lot of us. Anyway, 2022 is another nice number. 
but what, wait a minute. <laughs> so anyway, we'll see. But in the summer of 2021, in the midst of all that, we still could study the Dharma. And we studied, uh, we had a class, an online class. And some of the people in this room attended the online class. And the topic of the class was, no surprise, compassion. And we, we, we studied an Indian, ancient Indian, Indian text, an Indian text written probably in the fourth century by the great Asanga. Actually, he was maybe the amanuensis for Maitreya Buddha. Anyway, he wrote it. And it's called um, Adornment of the Mahayana Sutras. And uh, <clears throat> it's a pretty big book. Uh, not huge, but anyway, pretty big. And um, in chapter 17, there's a, a marvelous section on compassion. So we studied that section, which is about 34 verses. It wasn't even the whole chapter. The chapter has 64 verses, and we started on verse 29. <clears throat> and uh, when we were studying it, uh, one of the people in the class was particularly interested in, can you guess which verse? Verse 32. <laughs> she had some questions about verse 32 of this uh, wonderful teaching by the great Bodhisattva Sangha. In the, in the Buddhist, Chinese Buddhist canon, when they have, or they have this, this scripture, they, they say, for the author, the Bodhisattva, Asanga. A lot of people oftentimes say Asanga and Vasubandhu. They were brothers, supposedly. But in, in, the, in the canon, it says Bodhisattva, Asanga, and Bodhisattva, Vasubandhu. So number 32 is something is called something like a verse a verse on not dwelling in either samsara or nirvana so as i said earlier compassion is the main cause of buddhahood and buddhahood bears on the protection of all living beings who are suffering in the prison of samsara, the prison of birth and death. Remember that? I said that yesterday. I said it again today, and then maybe tomorrow I'll say it again. And then maybe on Sunday you'll have memorized it. Have you memorized it? Why don't you go ahead? Let's recite it. Compassion is the main cause. 
Compassion is the main cause of Buddhahood, which bears on the protection of all living beings who are in the prison of birth and death, who are suffering in the prison of birth and death. Yeah, so this verse is called a verse on not dwelling in samsara or nirvana. Bodhisattvas don't dwell in samsara, but they, they live there. It's, little, it's not the same as like in Monopoly where you're, you go to jail and you're just a visitor. <laughs> they're like working in, they're working in jail. They're working in, they're prison workers. And uh, they're prison, they're prisoners. They, they take, they're, they're in the prison, but they don't abide there. Because they're working to protect beings in prison. When you're working to protect beings in prison, you don't dwell there. You're too busy protecting beings to dwell. Now, if you take a break from protecting beings, you may notice that you're in prison and start dwelling there. And that's no good. No, no, no. no. But they also, if you don't dwell in, if you don't dwell in samsara, then you're, then you can work in nirvana. In other words, you can be happy in prison with these suffering beings because you're protecting them and serving them. So you can be happy there in all this suffering. And this happiness is called, is called peace. And it's called it's nirvana. But they don't dwell in nirvana either because they're working in samsara. This, is that like real clear? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you don't believe it, but is it clear that this is the proposal? This verse is about these bodhisattvas, these, these compassionate beings like Avalokiteshvara, who don't dwell in the prison of suffering, and they don't dwell in freedom from suffering. But they are free of suffering, and they are in the prison. They're liberated beings in prison, teaching other beings helping other beings in prison. And just a brief comment before I read the verse. Um, so we're, the Bodhisattva is in prison, or you could say we're in prison, and we have, uh, you know, we have mates there, and we also have supervisors and, uh, you know, guards, wardens, etc. I guess there's also like um, cooks who work in prison and stuff like that. They aren't really guards, but they make the food for us and probably janitors who clean. I don't know, there's a lot of people in prison with us. And we have the opportunity <laughs> to see that everybody in the prison is a precious human being, and we have the opportunity to cherish all of our 
all the other beings in prison with us. Now, if the Bodhisattva sort of came, what appeared in the prison, of course we we have the opportunity to really cherish the Bodhisattva too. Anyway, that's another picture of our life as Bodhisattvas. So we're in prison, and there's a lot of different people there with us, and some of them give us a really hard time. And some of them are really kind to us. And they're all uh, opportunities to practice compassion. And we need to really value their, their living radiance in order to do the work properly. So here's the verse on not dwelling, or it also says, not being located. So... I'm in prison, but I'm not located there. I'm in nirvana, but I'm not located there. The verse says, the compassionate genius understands that everything included in brackets, the prison of the life cycle of samsara, is naturally both suffering and selfless. So bodhisattvas, of course, are practicing compassion, but they also are practicing wisdom. And they, they, they come to understand that everything in samsara, everything in this prison that we live in here, Everything in this prison of the caste system of this country is a prison, and we live there. And everything in this terrible caste system is suffering and selfless. We need to understand those two things, apparently. So... The Bodhisattva, the Compassion One, who understands that everything is both selfless and suffering, they neither become disgusted nor damaged by any faults of the, of the prison system. Uh, it says, uh, the translation is disgusted. And disgust, you know, means disgust. It means like to spit out. Disgustatory. They don't spit out the suffering. And also they're not tormented by it. when we understand that suffering is selfless, it doesn't hurt us, so we can work with it. If we think it has a self, an independent existence, this suffering, that suffering, this suffering, that, if we think they have an independent existence, it, it, it hurts us. And when it, if it hurts us, then we want to, we just want to, you know, I don't know what, faint. 
or get out of just get out of prison and leave those other people there. I don't, I don't care. I got to get out of here. But you said you would stay here and work with us. I got to get out of here. This is hurting me too much. The Bodhisattvas understand that all this suffering, and all, all this suffering, and all the suffering beings have no substantial existence. You can't get a hold of them. You can't locate yourself in them. You can't get away from them. You can't get under them. You can't get over them. They're unavoidable. They understand that. So they don't, they don't, they're, they're with the suffering, intimately with the suffering. It doesn't harm them because of their understanding. But also, because of their compassion, they're not disgusted. But another translation would be, even though they know these beings are insubstantial, they don't get bored or disinterested. You know, they're still interested in beings who, who, you, who you can't get a hold of. They're, they're interested in insubstantial beings. They're devoted to them, even though they don't know who they are. I don't know who you are, but I'm devoted to you. I'm your girl. I'm your guy. I'm for you. And I don't know who you are. But I'm not, I'm, yeah, I'm not going to abandon you. So I said, not disgusted. No. Yeah. So I understand emptiness and I'm not disgusted or disinterested in beings. This is something which one can think about a lot. I remember when Edward Conza was alive, he, he, that's the great translator, he said, this is the Mahayana miracle, is that bodhisattvas understand, our bodhisattvas are devoted to liberate all beings, and yet there's no beings that they can find to liberate. And, and the miracle is, they just, keep <laughs> they just keep trying to liberate beings even though they can't find any. It's, kind of a, it's a miracle that they keep working without getting anything out of it. They're working for beings and, and they can't grasp any beings. But they somehow, they don't get like feeling like, well, what's the point? Why, you know, why put all this effort into saving beings who don't really exist in a substantial form? But they do. Uh, we sort of like have to work that one out. Now, most of us are, haven't got there yet. We still think beings do exist. The problem with that is burnout. So, this is about that. Case 32, uh, verse 32. To be devoted to beings who you can't grasp and to not be hurt by the hard work. And the, hard, the hardness of the work is also, doesn't have a, isn't self. Can't, that can't hurt you either. But if, if, this, if the hardness becomes substantial, then it, it can wipe you out and you can like retire, or, or not even retire, just quit. <laughs> so there's this baseball player in San Francisco He's from Georgia. His name is Buster Posey. 
and he just announced his retirement. And basically, yeah, he said, well, it's still sometimes a joy when we have a great game, but mostly it's just too painful for me now. All these, I have to put so much work in. So he's, he's retiring. And I'm not criticizing him, but he's kind of burned out on baseball. It's, he had so many big injuries, he's just in so much pain. He's a catcher. You've watched the catchers. It's, it's a very painful job to be squatting there. How they squat. Uh, anyway, <laughs> the bodhisattvas, because of their understanding, they can keep catching. They can be catchers in the rye forever because of their understanding. We need that understanding. So we chant the Heart Sutra. Even without you reminding me, I remembered that I have some examples of house cleaning that to do in the cocoon. I have a number of examples. One is um, you're in the cocoon. You're in the dark. I mean, you may not, you may not know you are, but you actually are in the dark. You may be thinking. Well, they have really nice lighting in here, but you don't know where you are because you are, you know, you're in the process of dissolving. And uh, <coughs> but you're you're there, and you're and you and you somehow you can remember your your vows still because you do your vows so much, you can remember them even when you dissolve. That's a proposal. The bodhisattvas are changing. And yet, because of their their vow practice, they keep remember they keep remembering their vow. Like, what am I here for again? Oh yeah, right. What's my vow? Oh yeah. Maybe it doesn't come that fast all the time. <laughs> like when you're in the middle of being disrespectful to someone, you might not remember to say, "What's the point again?" But they might ask you, what's the point again? I say, oh yeah, right, sorry, I remember now. So, one of the house temple cleaning opportunities is the thought that arises in some people who are in the cocoon, which is worrying about the future. And there's, we have a future here, right? We have a future of the planet, of the human species, of the species of many other plants and animals that we see are disappearing. And so in the face of that, a a being arises and comes to meet us, and that being is called worrying about the future. Worrying about the future of our loved ones, of future generations. Worry comes. So the house cleaning is to uh, clear away 
the, the forgetfulness that this worry is what you're here for. You're not here to get rid of the worry. You're here, the worry is your job in the cocoon, is to take care of it. Not to say, there's nothing to worry about. kind to your worrying about the future. And then again, here comes another one. Well, what about the future? The house cleaning is that you don't get distracted from compassion by what arises in the cocoon. Whatever arises there. The house cleaning is, oh yeah, that's my job. Or even, let's get out of the cocoon. That's another thing to be compassionate to. I can't stand this any longer. Another thing to be compassionate to. Being compassionate to all these things which temporary, for the moment, you don't understand that they're beings calling for your compassion. Another one is, you know, what's next? Another one is, is this enough? The house cleaning is, don't, don't get distracted by them from your practice. Practice with them. So in that sense, I'm suggesting that there's no distractions. All distractions are calls for compassion. And, if you, and you could say, well, if I don't remember that, then they're distractions. Say, okay. If you miss the chance, then you have temporarily missed a chance, so that you are distracted. But really, they in themselves are not distractions. Your response to them is to be fooled and miss the chance. And so we need to be... It's very similar to not miss the preciousness of any being. Worrying is a precious being that's calling for compassion. And I wish this worry to be happy. I wish this worry to be at ease and to be buoyant and relaxed. I have loving kindness for this worry. But if you don't practice, remember that this is a precious worry. You might try to get rid of it by doing something. And if you do, well, then that's something. Then that's the next precious being that you're trying to count. You're trying to eliminate the worry. But if I did that, then there wouldn't be any worry. No, that's fine. Let's take care of that one then. Not everything is asking for your compassion. So the house cleaning is to clean away. in a sense, to clean away falling for beings as anything other than something precious. So I have, I have more examples of house cleaning, but I'll wait for later to bring them up. I think, uh, yeah, I think, what time is it? Oh, 11 or 8. Well, anyway, that's... 
that, obviously that was plenty, right? In my perspective, I barely said anything, but I know that that's, that's an illusion, which I, I'm compassionate towards. Is there anything you'd like to bring up, bring forth, offer? Yes, sir. One second, please. Ask me about how my family's doing. Yeah, my mother-in-law died at 103 during the intensive. She died the day before Mel Weitzman, or she. She died the die the day of the Capitol riot. And, uh, yeah, and I think uh, my family was pretty much at peace with that. And we had a very lovely ceremony for her um, about um, maybe after the intensive was over. And then we just, a few days ago, interred her ashes along with her, with the ashes of my wife's father, both of them, put in the ground just a few days ago. And then one might think, what's next? But well, we, can, we can work with that. For the time being, um, duties to parents are completed, and there's peace in the West. Thank you for your question. My wife was such a devoted daughter. Amazing. That's what I mean by what next? Where's her devotion going to go next? <laughs> yes, Zach? Roshi, I just wanted to thank you for pointing out that the Heart Sutra is taught by Avalokiteshvara. That was very helpful uh, construction and reminder about maybe the purpose or the intent of giving construction. And yeah. I'm going to try to remember that. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, the sutra doesn't say. And then Avalokiteshvara for the welfare of the world, said, all five skandhas are, are empty doesn't sound very compassionate necessarily. I might say, well, that's compassionate. <laughs> but the teaching is to help people be free. It's to, the teaching all five skandhas are empty is to help us not dwell in suffering or freedom from suffering. So, yeah, it's like 
the word compassion, I don't see that much. I don't see it at all in the Heart Sutra except in the name of the teacher. And all, if you look in the, the, the marvelous Mahayana uh, perfect wisdom scriptures, so many, the word compassion is not, I don't see it that often. It's, it's wonderful, but it's, in the, it's, it's, the, it's being delivered from compassion, so it's understood, but we, we may not, we need to remember that. Thank you. And then you can ask, What's compassionate about this teaching? Yes, Jill. Uh, I had this, um, this brainstorm. It, it seemed to me that um, I'm confusing, but maybe it's true to confuse them. I mean, it's the right thing. Uh, care and compassion. And um, I wanted to say that there have been so many um, instances, sorry, I'm going to lose it here, uh, of you, and this, and there's lots of other instances, not just ones that I've noticed in you, taking care of me, and um, in the sense of like waiting on late to get in the door down here for you to offer incense, but many others of, um, I just happen to be at Wisdom from San Francisco's incident recently. And um, the care that they're, that they're employing to build this retirement center, including a, a, a celebration of the uh, break around, a, a, a beautiful celebration. Well, anyway, all these things I've been thinking, caring about things, in, in that sense, it's sort of real practical terms is compassion. And, and I never thought of it that way. So I thought, it is not compassion for me to let myself be late all the time. I'm just not paying attention. Or, you know, I think, oh, I can, I can do a few more things. I mean, is, I, so I don't, is that true? I mean, is, is care and taking care of things like doing what you're supposed to do compassion? As well as things that we that I ordinarily think of as compassion. Like, you know, helping somebody who's obviously suffering. I think you could say it is, and you can also say that people who are compassionate care about everything. That yeah, that they there's nothing they don't care about because there's nothing which isn't deserving of care and there's nothing which isn't deserving of respect. They treat, if it went, I should say, when their compassion practice is mature, they manage to be kind and careful with everything they do, every step, every word. So I think that compassion and wisdom make it that possible. Some people do care, but <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> they care in a in a way that's not based on compassion. That's based on on uh, 
for example, greed or even hatred. They care, they do things based on hatred. They care, you know, that this army beats that army and not the reverse, rather than care that everybody in, in battle would be safe and, and free of suffering. So I think compassion ma- makes it possible as it matures to care for everything. And maybe in the right in the way that's beneficial, rather than caring too much or too little. But some care isn't really in accord with compassion. Like if you are kind to Zach, and I cared about it in a way that I cared because I didn't want you to be kind to him. Well, that kind of care, that's not coming from, that's not compassion. But if you're kind to him, and I feel like, yeah, thanks for doing that for me. And I want you to be kind to everybody the way you're kind to him. That's more in accord with mature compassion. Thanks for being kind to each other, supporting each other. And some people prefer the word kind or kindness. They think they like, they feel better about that than compassion. I'm okay with that. The thing about compassion is that it notices, it, 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 it acknowledges suffering. So, loving, loving kindness is part of our practice. Wishing people to be happy. It's very important, but Bodhisattva is a little bit more concentrated on helping suffering beings, not just having people be happy, but having them be free. Because you can be happy even though you're not free. So the Bodhisattva wants people to be happy, yes. Really happy, yes. They do not disparage worldly happiness, no. They're happy for people to have worldly happiness. They want them to have compassion so that they can help other people. Because some people are happy, but they're they're happy, but they're not able to embrace suffering. The Bodhisattva's happiness is suffering because they love people. And that suffering doesn't come or go. But worldly happiness is, is wonderful. Like <laughs> when we were studying this text, well, I did something. What I, I did? I worked with somebody. Oh, oh. we had this uh, little uh, electric tea kettle that heats water, right? And it stopped functioning. Press, pressing the button, it, you know, the little click, it didn't go on. And um, so that was that. And uh, but I, I thought well, I'll, I'll just maybe maybe I'll try to fix it sometime. 
And in the meantime, before I fixed it, or got to start try to fix it, my dear wife wanted to have a tea kettle. So I said, I have, I have one over at Noah Bowden Hermitage. I'll bring it over. So I brought it over. And it works very nice to heat water, but the problem is when you tilted it over, the top fell off. So she tolerated that for a while. She said, can I get a new pot? <laughs> and I said, okay. She got a beautiful new pot. And she said, can I throw out the old one now? I said, no, I'll take, I'll take the one I brought back over to the temple. And also, I'll, I'll, I still would like to try to fix this thing. So the day came, while we were studying this, this text, while we were studying you know, bodhisattva happiness and worldly happiness. And uh, I, I started, tried to fix it. And I, the first thing I tried to do was to take it apart. But the screws in it, the shape of the screws was not a straight screw. What do you call those? Standard? It wasn't just a slit, and it wasn't a Phillips screw. It was a triangular screw. It also wasn't a, uh, what is it, the other one's called? Allen wrench. It wasn't an Allen wrench screw. And we tried Allen wrenches, but they didn't work. And then we found us kind of like a screw that has kind of like a round, soft head, and somehow managed to get it open. And that was a really that was a that that was quite a feat to get it apart. So I got it apart and looked inside, and I couldn't see any problems. But I kind of cleaned it up a little bit. There was there was a, somehow dirt and some kind of crud got in there. So I just cleaned it up and I didn't really see any difference and put it back together and clicked it and it worked. <laughs> Worldly happiness. It was really... <laughs> it, was, it was delightful to fix this thing. You know, good old primate hand-eye coordination, <laughs> and, it, and it, it, you know, it's nice stuff, you know. You make the teapot, you break, you fix it. It's fun. It's, you know, it's a, you know, a worldly happiness. I really felt worldly happiness, and I said, this is worldly happiness. And, uh, yeah, and then if it stops working again, that, and that, that goes away. Or even before it stops working, it fades. But the, the happiness of suffering because you love people doesn't, it, it never goes away. And it makes it possible, like we said before, to not run away from suffering. It makes it possible for you to care about the most obnoxious situation, the most obnoxious people, the most painful situation. You, you can go in there if you if you love people and but you need to feel happy in the middle you need to be happy so you dare to go into the into the prison if you're not happy you're going to run away but there is this bodhisattva happiness which is the greatest happiness which doesn't come or go and enables you to go into situation where there's no worldly happiness where there's just worldly suffering. That's all there is. And you love those that you love those beings. 
and it hurts you that they're suffering, and you're hurting, but you're hurt because you love. And that's the great, that, that joy sustains you in this very difficult work, which I know the Houston Zen Center has lots of suffering, but putting this place together, if it's very difficult to arrive at being able to take care of this wonderful place, which we don't know if it's a retreat center or a temple. But you, you suffered, this community suffered to um, take care of this place and the other place too. There's lots of difficulties that you went through. And, but I think you had some joy to sustain you in this hard work. And same in Sashin, we have hard time in Sashin. Sometimes really hard, sometimes just a little bit hard. But it, there's always suffering. There's always suffering in this birth and death. It, it doesn't, it's, it's always, pre, it's, it's omnipresent. And, and we, we need to be able to accept that, but we can't accept it if we don't have joy in the work of accepting it. And this joy is held up in this text. This text on compassion as the greatest happiness which sustains us in working with suffering beings and makes it possible for us to care about everything and also not too much or too little. Or it sustains us to keep working when we care too much and also to keep working when we care too little. Caring too much and too little is more suffering. But we, yeah, oh, okay, I care too much. I, you're right. I care too little. Yeah, you're right. And we, <laughs> we need to invite others to call us into question. Hey, do you care too much about this? I think you're right. Do you care too little about that person? Yeah, I think you're right. Thank you. Did you think that wasn't important? Like I, I think, I wonder, I just, I'm just going to do a little test here. Something came into my mind of an example. And I wondered if how many of you have heard this story. Probably you have. So one of my first work assignments when I went to Tassajara Zen Monastery, uh, d- during the initiatory period called Tangario, where we were sitting all the time for several days, after we got out from that sitting, difficult sitting. Uh, we got work assignments and, you know, whatever work assignment we were given, we were happy to have it. <laughs> oh, work? Oh, okay. So, um, one of my first, not my first, my first work assignment was to drive a truck. And I got in the truck and the truck was next to the zendo and it was facing downhill. And I got in the truck and started it up and started driving it, and it didn't have any brakes. <laughs> and it was heading towards the dorm. <laughs> that was my first job. <laughs> <laughs> but being a young person, I acted quickly and reached down and pulled the emergency brake. 
and it stopped before it ran into the dormitory. It was a big truck. That was my first job. My next job after that, because we couldn't drive the truck, was, <laughs> was to go and uh, fill in a ditch which occurred during the rainstorms, and the, the, the creek, the creek above the zendo, overflew, over, overflowed its boundary, and instead of running down the creek, it ran down the road and dug a huge gully in our roads. So next job was to fill in the hole. And then a little bit later than the next work period, my job was to repair the water line that got washed out because the water line was above, above ground and the, the roaring stream had broken the water line. So we went up, we and another man, who I, and I remember his name, 53 years ago, his name was Jim McGuire. And we went up to repair that water line. And we, it was plastic and we put it back together and then put this, these uh, wires around it, not, wire clip, not, so, so, I guess it's like sheet metal clips that you can tighten to hold, the, hold them together. So we clipped it together and then we moved up to do the next one. And while we're working on the next one, I said to him, let's go back and fix the last one. And he knew what I meant. We didn't care enough. We were thinking, did you hear the story before? <laughs> we were thinking, we got, it, it's broken in several places, we gotta, you know, we gotta go to the next one now. But we didn't do the first one very well. Both of us knew that, but neither one of us said, let's do this properly. Kind of rushed. It held together, but kind of, we, we kind of we were haunted by the incomplete job in the previous one while we were working on the next one. So I said, let's go back and do it. And he didn't say, well, what do you mean? We did it. He said, okay. And we went back and we did it properly, which took more time. We, ca we cared too little in this case. We didn't care too much, we cared too little. And we noticed it, and, and we acknowledged it, and we went back and made, and we called, made amends. We fixed it, and then we went to the next one. So of course that took more time. Uh, it would have been better just to do it thoroughly the first time, but we, we learned a lot from that. So we're gonna make mistakes. We're going to care too little about some people and some suffering. Some of our jobs we're going to do incompletely, and then we say, sorry, let's go back, okay. And some places we're going to care too much, and that's also harmful. And we're going to learn by trial and error. This is what we're doing, right? See, there was somebody else. Who was it? Was it Gail? No, nobody over there. Somebody over here. Uh, so there's Matt, Matthew. Which do you like? I like them both. Okay, Matt and Dan. Matt.
like to kind of share, if I may, some reflections about... Share the fruits? Share the fruits. Yeah, please. Um, especially as a, as a, some kind of reflections I've been having as, a, as I've been listening to you. Wonderful talk. Um, Sitting, I've been sitting zazen as often as realistically possible um, for you know what feels to me like a, a bunch of years now, um, and I always am reminded that I still don't really know what I'm doing. Putting air quotes around that, I don't really. I, I don't really understand what our practice is, what Zazen is, but I do it. I don't exactly know why I do it, but I know that I do it um, with a, a lot of sincerity and devotion. Um, and, uh, you know, as I'm, as I'm listening to you, to you talk, I'm reflecting that um, something else that I, I don't really understand are other beings. Um, you know, I have kind of, as you said in the previous talk, I have my ideas about them. Um, I have my ideas about all of the, all of the lovely beings in this room. I have ideas about you. Um, but I, I'm convinced that my ideas are there are limited compared to what all of you actually are. I, I do know that. I know that my ideas are limited, whether they're accurate or inaccurate. Um, and so yeah, I was just kind of I was sort of, I was reflecting on one way that our sitting practice can be a bodhisattva, it is a bodhisattva practice, but one way that it can be bodhisattva training is, um, you know, just this, this simple devotion to this kind of unknowable thing that we want to take very loving care of, you know, moment by moment, take very, you know, appropriate care of this practice that, that we're engaging in and how that sort of has definitely for me it has trained me to take the appropriate not perfectly but more often somewhat often take you know take the appropriate kind of care for, for beings that suddenly seem to pop up in my experience um and that's all I wanted to say. I was just, I, I had a reflection about that and felt I wanted to Thank you. put words on it. Thank you. Now, you can be devoted to a practice which is inconceivable. You can be devoted to an inconceivable Dharma practice. And one of the ways you can express your devotion to an inconceivable Dharma practice 
is by expressing your devotion to conceivable dharma practice. So, for example, sitting in, in sitting, you're putting your body in a sitting position. You can practice with that, with what you think that body is. You can be generous to that body. You can be careful of that body. You can learn to not care too much or too little for that body. You can be patient with that body. You can be diligent with that body. You can practice compassion with your conceivable body. And you can make that practice for itself, and you can also make that practice as an offering to the reality of what the practice is, which is beyond human conception, and which you have told us you have some sense you don't really understand the inconceivable practice. But nobody can understand the inconceivable practice. Not even the Buddha. The Buddha by herself does not understand the inconceivable Dharma. Only Buddha, together with Buddha, understands our practice. And isn't that this Buddha understands it and this Buddha understands it? It's the Buddha together that understands it. It's their it's their conversation that understands. Our conversation understands the inconceivable dharma, but our conversation is not me or you. It's our relationship, our intimacy, which is also ungraspable, understands the ungraspable. In the meantime, you do your conceivable things in conversation with your friends. They're doing their conceivable thing, you're doing your conceivable thing, you're devoted to it, and then you're in conversation with each other about it. Like, let's do that again, shall we? Or, hey Matt, how's your practice going? Um, may I ask you a question about it? And you say yes, and you, you have a conversation. But also when you're sitting in silence next to Mary Carroll, you're in conversation with her. And that conversation understands the Dharma. Not you, not Mary Carroll. So it's good to get used to, I don't understand the Dharma, but my relationship with you understands the Dharma. So I take care of myself, my conceivable self, and I also take care of our conversation, and our conversation, our intimacy, understands the inconceivable Dharma, which we're devoted to. And we express our devotion by having conversation with each other, which we're doing right now. This is how we're. This is how we understand. This is how we understand the Dharma. Dan, uh, first, just want to express gratitude for being with us, Yeah, I saw your difficulties and yeah. trouble suffering. <laughs> so, really appreciate that. I think the only time I ever see kanji sai as opposed to kanji om is in the Prashna, is in the Hara Sutra. It's yeah, I think that's. I think I think that's the only place that. that uh, in, so yeah, it's kind of interesting. Yeah. So why, why is that? And, uh, 
my understanding is, I think the Chinese society is kind of like Free or yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah, so uh, I think that's the usual understanding of that is that kanjisai is to contemplate. You could either say it's the contemplation of the one who is self who is free. It, it could be the contemplation of this being who's free, or it could also be contemplation of this freedom, of this of this ishvara. So Ishvara is self-exist is translated as self-existence. And Ishvara I think means like also in Sanskrit means like to be free. Avaloki Ishvara. Avilokita. Avi looking down from above. Lokita world. Ishvara, the liberated one who contemplates the world. So that I think that's what most normal scholarly analysis of this unusual name is. But I also sort of as a as a not not native speaker to say the least of Chinese, when I look at it, it looks like he's contemplating the way the self exists, which is not the usual understanding. But this this wise contemplation of the way the self exists actually is freedom from self clinging. So, yeah, and. Uh, contemplation of the way the self exists is that the self is empty of its own being. But that's not the usual understanding. The usual understanding is either the contemplation of freedom or the contemplation of the free one. And it's only in the Heart Sutra that we see that. I've, uh, so Avalokiteshvara is only teaching the Heart Sutra, perfect wisdom, and also that name for Avalokiteshvara is only in the Heart Sutra. So, it's considered the Heart Sutra is a very unique, a very unique scripture, which isn't not just Zen people are devoted to it. But thank you for that point. Is that enough for this morning? If it's still morning, I know it's. <laughs> I know it's not enough for this afternoon. Okay.